I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, Black poets and writers using their craft to unearth forgotten histories, from the glory days of Greenwood to the Tulsa Race Massacre. Folks like O.W. Gurley and J.B. Stratford lent one another money to start businesses. It was a booming area. It had utter extravagance and opulence. It also had a red light district. There were jazz clubs. Count Basie came through. And there was a large, large black middle class. And later, from slavery to colonialism, how one poet both confronts and celebrates his Jamaican roots. Rather than rush to get to the fields, they would drag their feet and loaf. And I think that's still an aspect of Jamaican uh, identity in that we like to take it slow. And I think of that as a form of resistance. The love of music, the love of festivity, the love of company, that's very strong and present. And it's a mode of resistance that emerged out of slavery. How black poets find the words, cadence, and rhythm to examine their own history. That's coming up on Life Examined. When it comes to confronting pain and healing, and also beauty and wonder, the written word is a powerful tool to express and connect. Syntax, cadence, and rhythm opens the door for pause and deeper reflection. This week, we're speaking to two amazing poets. Both are black, and both have embraced the written word and poetry as the art form best able to confront and unearth their histories with racism, colonialism, and slavery. Quraysh Ali Lansana grew up in the deeply segregated town of Enid, west of Tulsa and Oklahoma. Despite Oklahoma's dark history, both with indigenous nations and civil rights, Quraysh never learned about the Tulsa race riots of 1921 or the thriving black communities in Greenwood when he was in school. He was, however, introduced to poetry, and inspired by Beowulf, the works of Gwendolyn Brooks, music and rap, Quraysh turned to poetry to educate and unearth some of Oklahoma's forgotten past as a way towards acknowledgement and healing. Learn from the past, Quraysh says, so the future can be better. Quraysh Ali Lansanat teaches at the University of Tulsa and Oklahoma State University, Tulsa. He's the author of 20 books of poetry, nonfiction, and children's literature, and also executive producer of KSOU NPR Focus Black Oklahoma Monthly Radio Program. Quraysh Ali Lansanat, welcome to Life Examine. It's great to have you. Thank you, Jonathan, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, for those that haven't spent much time in Tulsa, this is this is an area of the country you're from, you're familiar with deeply. What What's it like to be there? Well, certainly, first of all, I uh, I grew up about an hour and 40 minutes to the west of Tulsa in a little town called Enid. Um, but I am an Okie. Um, and one of the things that's very fascinating about Oklahoma, uh, because it's one of the youngest states in the union, it has served as both a battleground and a litmus test for most of the significant civil rights legislation of the 50s, 60s, and 70s. I mean, Thurgood Marshall almost lived here for quite a while, um, again, because it was one of the youngest states. But also, if we even go back further in time prior to that, um, Oklahoma pre-statehood, which was known as Indian Territory, um, was both the you know the the, the repository and also a, a, a leaving point or departure point for um, the two earliest and largest ethnic cleansing actions in this country uh, in the name of you know manifest destiny. Mm-hmm. And so we have a, a very rich history, of course, of indigenous tribes, indigenous nations here. Um, in the state because of the Trail of Tears, uh, because of the Dawes uh, Indian Removal Act and so forth. You alluded for a second there to the Tulsa Race Massacre. This was in 1921. And I, I, I feel like this is something that needs to maybe be talked about more. I mean, it's it's in the history books, but I don't know how common it is for so many folks. I, I wonder if you could speak to that for a second and maybe talk about what it's like for you to be rooted in a place where there was such violence and such atrocities occurred. So there are many, many, many folks um, in Oklahoma um, who know nothing about Greenwood and know nothing about the massacre. Um, one of the things I think that gets lost in the the recent sort of um, rediscovery, if you will, of this history because of the centennial in, in uh, 2021 um, is how amazing the Greenwood District was from 1906. Really, you'd go back to about 1890, but formally founded in 1906 to 1921. Um, How amazing and vibrant the district was in the face of Jim Crow, in the face of some of the harshest Jim Crow laws in the country. Can you tell us about that community? I mean, what, what was it like? What made it so special? 
Well, what made it special is that it was really a city within a city. So understanding that Black folks could not go south of First Street um, to shop, could not go south of First Street at all unless you were domestic in the home of a, of a white person. And mm-hmm. so folks had to take care of their own needs. And so when O.W. Gurley uh, actually bought the first plot of land in his wife Emma Gurley's name um, in 1906, um, there was also oil starting to really boom in Tulsa and um, in the in surrounding areas in Northeast Oklahoma. And so you had this, it was a real boom town, this real thriving community of folks uh, and, this influ- and this influx of folks, um, uh, white and black. And so, but because of Jim Crow legislation, uh, black folks had to do for themselves. They had to provide everything that they needed. And so folks like O.W. Gurley and J.B. Stratford um, actually, you know, lent one another money to start businesses, you know, venture capitalism before it was a phrase, right? Um, actually, um, you know, borrowed money from one another to build businesses. Um, uh, John and Lula Mae Williams, who owned the Dreamland Theater and Williams uh, Auto Garage and Williams Confectionery, um, you know, were folks who received loans from Gurley or Stratford and then paid them back and continued to build a community. Uh, while at the same time, uh, folks were boostering, as in um, inviting folks, you know, uh, from uh, from the South primarily to come to this place um, mm-hmm. called, um, you know, Oklahoma, where there was an opportunity for a Black person to live, um, live with more independence and more freedom uh, and, and not under the same sort of Southern yoke of Jim Crow. And so it was a booming, you know, it was a booming area. It had it had utter extravagance and opulence. It also had a red light district. You know, mm-hmm. um, it was, a, you know, there were jazz clubs. Count Basie came through. Duke Ellington came through. Um, you saw, And there was a large, large black middle class. And so uh, it wasn't really a city within a city. Well, you, you wrote a poem that talks about this event and the fact that it was a centennial just a few years ago. I, I'd love it if you would share it with us. Sure. So one of the more iconic photographs, and again, one of my good friend, Dr. Carlos Hill at the University of Oklahoma published a book for the centennial, a photographic history of the uh, of the massacre. And this is largely because, you know, he posits in his book that um, the Tulsa race massacre may have been the most uh, heavily photographed incident of racial violence prior to the cell phone. Um, because what was in vogue at the time uh, were taking photos of lynchings of Black folks and turning them into postcards, um, certainly in Oklahoma and other places in the South. So if there were an estimated 25,000 white folks in the district uh, on June 1st, you could roughly say that probably almost 10,000 of them had cameras. And so there are many, many photographs. And so one of the more iconic photographs of the of, from the massacre is of a photo of folks, of Black folks being marched um, to one of three internment camps. And um, and they're being marched past uh, the destruction of their homes, the destruction of their buildings, the destructions of the district, the destruction of the district that they built with their own hands and, and ingenuity. And so this poem speaks to that. Um, and part of it appears on an album called Fire in Little Africa. And Little Africa was a uh, a nickname given by by white folks about uh, Greenwood. Um, but this is called Every Step. Marched at gunpoint down Archer past my own smoldering home, my life, my hands high, white mob done shot up firemen who come to stop the burning. Marched at gunpoint down Archer past my own smoldering home, my life, my store ashes, 23 years gone in 18 hours at the hands of deputized crackers. Marched at gunpoint down Archer past my own smoldering home, my life, my rifle now, some white boy's firearm, killing defiant niggas with a wounded niggas gun. Marched at gunpoint down Archer past my own smoldering home, my life, my uncle bloody dead in charred black skin lying in the street as they loot. Marched at gunpoint down Archer, past my own smoldering home, my life, my head low, rage feeds blood and eyes trace cracks of sanity in the known road. 
marched at gunpoint down Archer, past my own smoldering home, my life, my girl and boy, sobbing mama's hips wet in stifling June, hot, heavy as redneck hate, marched at gunpoint down Archer, past my own smoldering home, my life, my wife's missus gonna come claim us, cage coons like stray mutts at the pound, marched at gunpoint down Archer, past my own smoldering home, my life, my police protection ribbon marks me credit against a good Christian word from Maple Ridge. Marched at gunpoint down Archer, past my own smoldering home, my life. My spirit walks greenwood to pine and back like the grit of black love then, now. Hmm. How does it feel for you to read that poem? I mean, I, I know this is something that's been published for a while, but I, I, I felt something kind of deep and stirring within you as you were presenting that. Well, yeah, I mean, it's been, you know, it's been out since 2021. I wrote it for um, a publication for the Centennial and again for that, that hip hop record, Final Little Africa as well. Um, you know, every time I read this poem, you know, it's emotional to me. There's mm. a there's emotional weight um, that comes with it. I think most with most art, right? Um, mm. But for me, you know, because I've been so steeped in this history, because I live here now, which um, you know, um, and I'm engaged in work in Greenwood, um, and because of the, the the state of Greenwood today, right? That. Um, before the massacre, there were several hospitals in North Tulsa. Now there's there's not a single hospital in North Tulsa. Um, the mortality rate is 11 fewer years uh, for Black Tulsa, North Tulsa than than than, than South Tulsa. Mm. Um, there's one grocery store um, in North Tulsa when there were there were several, you know, almost 30 um, before the massacre, and so. Um, I could go on and on about the savage iniquities that exist uh, in North Tulsa today that, in my op opinion, have direct connection to what happened in 1921. Um, it is it is literally a, a, a part of the city that um, that the city has forgotten or neglected, except for a an over overbearing police presence. And mm -hmm. um, and I believe that 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 stigma that exists about the community um, is over 120 years old. The stigma about North Tulsa, Black Tulsa, Greenwood um, is just as alive and well today as it was in 1920, 1921. And so I take all of those things um, into account, all of those truths, all of those realities uh, certainly fuel uh, my passion when I read this poem. Um, and think about all that was lost um, and then the state of the district now. Mm. Reflecting just back on that, that poem that really, really has stuck with me, there's that, that common refrain that repeats, marched at gunpoint down Archer. And there's something so lyrical in the repetition of that, almost musical, like the phrase that gets called back over and over and over again, and then expanded on like a great musician might, like a jazz player, or like a classical player in some traditions too. How much does that sense of, of musicality factor into the way you try and construct your poems? Another good question. Musicality, I think, you know, uh, a good friend of mine many years ago, you know, come, came sort of conceived this concept that poetry is the musicality of language, right? And so um, I've music has always been uh, an important aspect of how I approach the page. Um, and, um, and, you know, and that has to do for me with, with syntax, uh, with caesura, the use of space, um, and with certainly some, you know, one of the many things I learned from from Miss Brooks, from Gwendolyn Brooks, my my mentor, um, is using sounds, using vowels in the middle of of words, um, soft consonants to um, at the beginning of words to uh, create a different kind of tone or emotion. Where you place your hard consonants, you create a kind of tension um, or violence, and so um, all of that. You know, all of that um, certainly factors in to, um, 
you know, to when I, when I approach the page, how I approach the page. Um, with this particular poem, I really wanted um, the refrain, March at gunpoint down Archer, past my own smoldering home, my life. Those first two lines um, are repeated in every, in every stanza. Mm -hmm. And then, and I really wanted to, with the poem titled Every Step, I wanted the reader or the listener to experience that this is what we are, this is what the folks were experiencing in this photograph. This is what folks were experiencing um, in, uh, in real life on, on that morning, which is the, 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 ho the hopelessness and the despair and the monotony of, of walking literally with heavy, with heavy, heavy, heavy feet and heavy, heavy hearts past your prosperity. You're being marched past that where you shopped yesterday, where you spent your dollars the day, be you know, the day before. Mm -hmm. um, and so I wanted the weight. My goal was an attempt for the weight of all of that to be reflected in the refrain, you know, and to be reflected in sort of the, the, the drudgery and the pain and the weight that I'm walking past my own prosperity now in ruins. And, and that's what I, that's, that was my goal. I, I hope I succeeded, but that was my goal. Mm, no, I, I, I would say you did. And I'm sure many of our, our listeners would agree. And if we take a step back kind of further in time before you wrote this poem to maybe when you were just a young man realizing that you had a love for something called poetry, um, where do some of those memories take us in this conversation? In eighth grade reading class in, in junior high school, uh, I was introduced to Beowulf. I was introduced to the work of Miss Gwendolyn Brooks, whom I had no idea, certainly at, at that age, um, that I would have the great blessing of not only meeting her, but being mentored by her for the last decade she was on this planet. But at the same time, falling in love with Miss Brooks's poetry and Beowulf, there was this brand new form of poetry called rap. Mm. And um, and those three things together, particularly with uh, my being introduced to rap, um, changed my whole life. Right. You know, I abandoned the BGs very quickly. I write in the essay, <laughs> um, mm. but um, it changed my life because what because I already had this love of language. I already had this love of sound and music. And then rap, um, as I as I wrote in a an essay for the Breakbeat Poets, um, volume one, one of the books I co-edited, um, rap became art, artifice, and artifact, right? That rap poetry was the art, was the, the, the vehicle of the art, and also was a thing of art. And mm -hmm. so it, when, when I first heard Rapper's Delight, it literally blew my mind that somebody could do such a thing with language. Um, you know, and it turns out that Rapper's Delight was uh, not recorded with a DJ, but a band, which was disappointing to learn. But um, but it changed my life. Certainly. I, I've never been a rapper. I have taught rappers. <laughs> I've coached. Uh, I've taught hip hop classes, um, but I've never been an MC. But I have a uh, but rappers rappers changed, changed my changed my whole. Uh, I don't know if I'd say that. It, I mean, it's hard to say I, if it changed, if rap changed the way that I approached the page. In some ways, I think it does. Um, but, you know, I started writing seriously at the age of 19 when I was a sophomore journalism major at the University of Oklahoma. Um, and most of that work, just like most of my work now, is political. It had a sense of musicality, but not the kind of musicality, of course. You know, now that I'm 58 and I've read and studied and learned more. Um, but yeah. those would be the sort of the the, the, the grounding uh, aspects or elements of, of, of my love of poetry, probably. Miss mm -hmm. Gwendolyn Brooks, you mentioned, was was fundamental in the writer that you became. You She mentored you uh, for years. And um what would you say about her for those that are not familiar with her work? What do we need to know about Miss Gwendolyn Brooks as a poet and as a human? Miss mm. uh, Brooks was uh, among the most amazing, certainly the most generous, one of the most kind um, human beings that I've, I've ever had the privilege to know. 
And I would put Miss Brooks and Miss Lucille Clifton neck and neck as the as the kindest people I've ever known. And she was when I think about Miss Brooks as poet, as writer, I think about the words precision and exactness. Mm-hmm. That Miss Brooks believed that you know she she is she had actually labored for months over one word in a poem before she felt like it was ready she spent so much time thinking about is that what i want to say is that is that the word that you want to use here is it doing what you need for it to do and she approached all of her work that way um and you know i had the great privilege of being one of 10 or 11 students in the last uh, college um, semester long workshop she taught before she passed. We had met before then, but I uh, was fortunate to be in that class. Um, and I still have a folder of poems with red ink still dripping from it from 1996. Um, what she was about exactness. She was about there are no wasted words. She was about this. The, the words have to do the work you intend for them to do in that place, in that moment. And if that word's not doing that work, change that word. And she felt that way about every word on every page. Mm-hmm. Um, and I learned that, you know, um, I learned that those traits from her about being that meticulous uh, about uh, about language, right? Um, and one of Ms. Brooks's, uh, you know, one of her many uh, famous quotes is, you know, if I ever needed a poem, all I had to do was look out the window. And so she really instilled in me and many others, the idea of poet as observer, that mm-hmm. uh, we need to, to, to watch and look and see and hear um, and pay attention because much of what feeds us and informs us is outside the door. We just mm-hmm. have to be open and aware enough to to hear it, to see it, to listen. Yeah. And so she certainly taught me those sort of powers of observation for sure. Um, she was just amazing, um, amazing, amazing, amazing. I think one of the most important poets, certainly of the 20th century. And, uh, you know, I would not be the man that I am today um, and I would not be the poet that I am today uh, without her, her yeah. guidance, her nurturing, her pushing, uh, her, her, her tough love at times and her grace. Hmm. Well, I'd love if uh, you could bring us one of her poems. Is there one that, that kind of you, you feel like sharing? Sure. There are a bazillion. I feel like mm-hmm. sharing, but I will choose this one um, as it is. Um, near Valentine's Day. And, you know, one of, you know, it's not easy to write a love poem, at least not a good love poem. (laughs) True. Um, But Miss Brooks um, did that um, on numerous occasions. And this is actually from her first book, um, A Street in Bronzeville. And uh, we'll talk more about it on the other side, but we have forgotten Sunday, the love story. And when you have forgotten the bright bed clothes on a Wednesday and a Saturday, And most especially when you have forgotten Sunday, when you have forgotten Sunday halves in bed or me sitting on the front room radiator in the limping afternoon, looking off down the long street to nowhere, hugged by my plain old wrapper of no expectation and nothing I have to do and I'm happy why and if Monday never had to come. When you have forgotten that, I say, and how you swore if somebody beeped the bell and how my heart played hopscotch if the telephone rang and how we finally went into Sunday dinner. That is to say, went across the front room floor to the ink-spotted table in the southwest corner to Sunday dinner, which was always chicken and noodles or chicken and rice and salad and rye bread and tea and chocolate chip cookies. I say, when you have forgotten that, when you have forgotten my little presentiment that the war would be over before they got to you, and how we finally undressed and whipped out the light and flowed into bed and lay loose limb for a moment in the weekend bright bedclothes, then gently folded into each other. When you have, I say, forgotten all that, then you may tell, then I may believe you have forgotten me well. 
I'm so glad that we could maybe end with that poem because you're a journalist, I'm a journalist, and we are inundated with so much darkness and hate and powerful forces against us. And to hear that again to me brings me back to just something that is so pure and wonderful, which is a love poem mm -hmm. and exquisite language. And I, do you know what I'm saying? We, we mm -hmm. need this at times, don't we? Uh, absolutely, we do. And one of the things that I love about this poem and so much of Miss Brooks's work, but this poem in particular, is that, uh, you know, there's not there are no fireworks in the poem. There's there's nothing grandiose in the poem, but it's absolutely exquisitely stunning uh, because of its simplicity, um, because of its quietness and because of the 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 the, the minutiae the small details that create the world that that just wrap us in love that just just wrap us in this day with with Henry and and Miss Brooks uh, i just think it's one of the most gorgeous things ever it's been such a pleasure to be joined by Kureish Ali Lansana thank you so much for just sharing some of your work some of Miss Gwendolyn Brooks and some larger ideas with us i really appreciate it my pleasure Jonathan thanks for having me Koresh Ali Lansana teaches at the University of Tulsa and Oklahoma State University, Tulsa. Still to come, confrontation and celebration. Our next guest shares how his Jamaican roots combine the two. And now to pose a question to our listeners. How do you think poetry unearths history in a way that's, say, different than nonfiction or fiction? We'd love to hear from you on our Facebook page. We'll be back with Life Examined after this short break. Stay close. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard poet and writer Koresha Lee Lansana recite one of his favorite poems and talk about why the poet Gwendolyn Brooks was such a mentor and inspiration. Gwendolyn Brooks, Lansana said, taught him, quote, the power of observation. Well, our next poet, Aishan Hutchinson, is also an astute observer of life. Most recently, he's looked to the little-known colonial past of his homeland, Jamaica. In his forthcoming collection of poems called School of Instructions, Hutchinson memorializes that forgotten period in time when, in World War I, thousands of Black West Indian soldiers served in the British Army, many of whom never returned home. Aishan Hutchinson is an associate professor and director of creative writing at Cornell University. He's an essayist and the author of two poetry collections. His forthcoming collection comes out in the fall of 2023. Aishan Hutchinson, welcome to Life Examined. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. I'm I'm really fascinated in the place you grew up in Jamaica, and I, I believe you're you're our first Jamaican guest, and and so uh, I, I'd love for you, in, in the way that sometimes only a poet can, to take us to where you grew up and how do you feel the kind of grips of history still there? Because I know that the past is certainly filled with some darkness and complexity. Um, what? How would you talk about that? I would talk about it the same way you just mentioned it. It's filled with complexity. Um, there is a, a deep darkness to that past, of course, with the, the colonial brutality and enslavement and the Middle Passage um, before that. Um, there's also great resistance and beauty um, uh, that, that is uh, simultaneous with the landscape and the, and the people mm. and, and should be uh, also taken into account when talking about history. So the, the, the African enslaved who were brought to the island and uh, who were forced to work on plantations in, in where I grew up, um, they also resisted uh, in various ways, sometimes through outright um, rebellion and, and at times through uh, very casual, one would think, uh, things like a, a sort of go slow they would, um, rather than rush to, to get to the fields as the, the master dictated, they would sort of drag their feet and loaf. Mm. And I think that's still a, an aspect of Jamaican uh, identity in that we, we, we like to take it slow. Yeah. 
Um, so, so there's a connection there, and and I, I I think of that as a form of resistance, the love of music, the love of festivity, the love of fun, the the, the love of of company. Uh, that's very strong and present um, in 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 Jamaican communities across the island, and and it's a mode of resistance that emerged out of uh, out of slavery. Yeah, I, I and I'm really just sitting with this. Really, I I think it's a fascinating juxtaposition, right? A, mm-hmm. a place in which you know certainly there was, as I mentioned before, darkness or or I think human right atrocities, but yes. it's also framed in a place of such exquisite physical environmental beauty. Right. It's mm-hmm. like, how do we hold those two together? Because they they yeah. seem to almost compete for space in my mind. Yeah, they do in mind, too. Um, uh, but I think of them simultaneously and one doesn't cancel the other. Mm. Um, and in fact, um, there is a, a great amount of strength that is that that is in the people uh, because of this reason that um, we are well aware of, of, the, of our historical past and um, the resistance that it took to um, gain the sort of semblance of independence and freedom and to make the island our own. So we claim that space with, 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 with a sort of possessive, um, just a high possessive nature. We, 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 Jamaicans are, are very civic-minded, um, patriotic, and, um, and love uh, the, the culture that we, we're still making and creating. So I think of, um, I think of a phrase often, uh, often and a phrase used a lot by the, the great uh, African-American poet Yusuf Kumunyaka, who was, I was lucky to have had as a, a teacher when I was a student at NYU when I did an MFA there. And he likes to talk about poetry being a form of confrontation and celebration. So that 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 double that duality uh, I feel is 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 um, in my mind constantly when I think of uh, my own Jamaicanness and my own Jamaicanness largely too not just um, as as a, as a as a citizen of that country and it being my birthright but as a citizen of the world that my my and as a poet my um, my position is one of of confrontation and celebration, mm. confronting what needs to be confronted, celebrating what needs to be celebrated. Mm. How do you think the the music, the cadences, mm. the mm-hmm. the the culture? You mentioned the kind of the the, the type of of slowness and celebration and protest. Yes. All of those things that seem very very filled in the essence of Jamaica. How do you think those? work their way into your writing, if at all, but I, I'm just curious. <laughs> they do, and profoundly. Um, it's our, our the, the Jamaican island, as you know very well, you might know the, the figures of Bob Marley and Buju Banton and so on, uh, reggae music, uh, uh, great uh, figures, um, was always around. And, um, but we, the island has at least four or five uh, musical forms that preceded uh, reggae. And uh, some of those forms are, weren't, were not were not recorded. Uh, one of which um, is a sort of a African retention practice called kumina, um, which, which is in the, the eastern part of the island where, where, I, where I lived. And I would go to these um, kumina ceremonies to see drummers, dancers, and, um, and, and observe... Uh, what was going on, and some of the the Kumina lyrics um, retain West African languages, mm-hmm. words, and so on that uh, I did not understand. But the sound of them um, was just powerful and overwhelming, and I tried to to see from that early on, very very early, to see if 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 I could write uh, and capture not just by describing um, what I was observing. But the sounds of what I what I heard, if I could l- let the words move similarly on the page, um, so yes, I think that my 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 syntax, my my cadence, my rhythm is deeply inflected by various forms of Jamaican music, and I should say too that the the Jamaican music emerged out of um, up, out of out of sort of emancipation festivities that that uh, sprung up in the in the eighteen um, thirties when Jamaica gained independence from emancipation from Britain. So this this music of exuberance of uh, of praise 
of celebration um, sort of took hold of, 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 of the, the, the psyche of the people and, and be, became a very physical presence um, everywhere and uh, on the island, mm -hmm. which sort of, that's where you could trace our music uh, right up to sound system, dancehall era um, currently, um, in that it's a, it, the music, um, as music should, uh, create... Um, create a space for for gathering and for um for people to uh, come and, f and and be free yes yeah you mentioned kumana and i are there any words or phrases that I, you mm. might just share with us or what it might sure. sound like i'm curious yeah yeah the, when i was a kid um across from my my mother's house uh, lived uh, a kumina queen a woman named miss mona uh, a blind woman. Um, at this point, when I when I got to know her, she was in her nineties, I think, mm. and um, and and she she was sort of uh, she couldn't leave her house because uh, uh, she was too too weak. So she would sit in in her doorway and listen uh, for people passing and try to call someone over to have a conversation. I think she was was lonely, and she sort of. Uh, took me in, in in some ways. I was the the the, the youngest boy or the youngest kid uh, nearby. So if I moved at all, she would just hear me, and I would hear my name shout uh, shouted from her house. So I would go over, and she would talk to me, and and use those kumina words. Uh, one of the things that she would do, she liked to smoke um, a cigarette, and she smoked the cigarette with the flame, the the lit part of the cigarette in her mouth. And she would close her mouth and hold the the cigarette until it smoked all the way out down, and then um, would spit out this this thick glob of um, just ash, and it's it's disgusting, really. But I was always fascinated by that. But when she wanted to to send me to the the corner shop to buy a, a cigarette for her, um, she would use the Kumina uh, language to do that, and the phrase that she would use is. Kinta Panyamalu and bring back a boy. A boy is cigarette. Kinta, something like run. Uh, pan is a Jamaican Patwa word for on, of course. So, you know, walk on your, run on your feet and get me my cigarette. <laughs> oh, I love that. Um, well, I, I'd love now to transition into some of your own writing and the fact that you, you have a forthcoming collection coming out mm -hmm. and that my understanding of it is that it, it really does stay rooted to a certain extent in in where you come from, people that yeah. you may not have known, folks. And I'll let you describe it, but I know that you know part of the theme here are these West Indian soldiers that went to fight in World War One. Can you can you set this up for us? Just what what you were kind of trying to get to in this collection? Yeah, this collection it's called School of Instructions. Um, is my attempt to memorialize the West Indian soldiers who uh, participated as volunteers in, in World War I. Um, and there were up to about 16,000 West Indians who, who signed up uh, to fight in British regiments. Uh, 10,000 of those came from Jamaica. So the, the, the majority of the soldiers uh, came uh, from my island. Um, I didn't know the history of of this event and and the part, of course the the war I, I knew about um but but not of the involvement of 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 black soldiers from the west indies and in 2018 the, the, during the centenary of the of the um of of the celebration of the world war 1 i was invited uh to the archives in at the imperial war museum in london to, to look through and see what I can find uh, about the soldiers, the black uh, West Indian soldiers, and, and, and write a poem. So uh, I, had a, I had an easy task um, in some ways to, to just write a single poem, but I, I got carried away. The, the, their voices sort of invaded me, and I wanted to, to do something um, a little bit more staid um, that give more attention to, to their experience. Because my sense is that um, not a lot has been written about their involvement. Um, uh, they, they, the soldiers were 
uh, the, the armies, the regiments were, were segregated and the soldiers were referred to as cannon fodders. So they were, they were there to do the, the menial tasks um, in, in Europe and, and, in, um, and in the Middle East, the digging of the trenches, the moving, moving, moving of, um, of in- equipments and weapons and so on. They were only allowed to bear arms in the, in the Middle East. So that's where they saw combat, uh, which is towards the last two years of the war. Um, but one of the things that struck me when I was at the, 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 the archives at the Imperial War Museum was this photograph I found of soldiers, you know, the West Indian soldiers um, sort of, you know, just lying around um, and posing for the camera. Um, they're very young. Their shiny black faces staring back um, mischievously and uh, full of a sort of joy. I think um, I'm not sure why. You know, when they're 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 dressed for war, they're or they're wearing um, the the khaki uniform of um, the lower regiments, and um, and I wore a, a khaki uniforms all through my my school days in Jamaica. So I could I identified um, uh, very quickly with that. Um, with that image, and uh, I felt a deep sympathy for them because here are young men who are um, who are giving doing the, the you know uh, the ultimate sacrifice for but for what you know because this is a war between I mean it's a geopolitical war but 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 they're fighting in British regiments their former uh, overlords you know so that contradiction really really bothered me and I, I wanted to to um to explore it as much as I could. Mm. Well one of the poems that, that really jumped out to me is called The Mud Sermon and I'd love if you would share that with us. Happy to They shoveled the long trenches day and night. Frostbitten mud, shell shock mud, dung heap mud Imperial mud, venereal mud, malaria mud, hunbait mud, mating mud, 1655 mud, white flashes of sharks, Golgotha mud, chilblain mud, Caliban mud, cannibal mud, ha 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 mud, amnesia mud, Dreptomania mud, lice mud, pyrexia mud, exposure mud, aphasia mud, no man's lands, every man's mud, and the smoking flax mud, dysentery mud, septic sore mud, hogpen mud, nephritis mud, constipated mud, fate mud, sandfly fever mud, Rat mud, shiol mud, erhashere's mud, og mud, asquit mud, parade mud, scabies mud, mums mud, memra mud, pneumonia mud, miniminetical upasin mud, civil war mud, and darkness and worms will be their dwelling place mud, yars mud, gog mud. Magog mud, God mud, Canaan the unseen, as promised, saw mud. They resurrected new counter kingdoms by the abitrement of the sword mud. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And I mean the the the, yeah. the repeating refrain of mud, but mm-hmm. but the, there are words in there, are perhaps languages or phrases that I've never heard in, in my own <laughs> ears or in my own world. So, t- tell me yeah, a little man. bit about that. So uh, there are words too that I I discovered um, and took from various places. Some words that I didn't know myself and encountered and and felt that they. Um, they, they they were right for what I was trying to do here. It's it's a sort of invocation of the psychic damage that and the physical and psychic damage of of um of the war, and the the horror of um of of that experience. 
And mud is a in 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 World War One writing and and especially in World War One poetry is is a not just a not only a sort of a noun or a descriptor of the of of one of the the main uh, elements of the war that the the men had to deal with, but uh, has come to be, be a metaphor of the deep density of that experience. So by repeating it. Um, and pushing it to its breaking point that it is no longer a word or a metaphor but a condition that um that is impossible to overcome um and 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 so i wanted to to play with that notion as far as i can and at the same time creating little spaces to um to aerate the, the, the that that thickness a bit but even those little spaces are uh fragments of um uh, words that pinpoint or point towards um, enslavement, um, typical uh, tropical diseases, um, uh, biblical references, nineteenth um, um, century pseudoscience refer- references that have come to um, justify enslavement, and so on. So it's all it's all sort of put into the stew of um the what i would what i would i would think of it this way uh the way in which one of my favorite um writers and poets and and a uh, poet and and philosopher from the caribbean theorist from the caribbean the french caribbean uh edward glisson um calls um opacity right um uh, meaning that the that times cross the past the future and and the present are all happening um at the same time but uh they 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 sometimes it's difficult to uh to pull one from the other and um and so we have to contend with what that means and and uh and from the from the standpoint of a, of a, of colonial history um we're always sort of facing down the collapse of time um we were talking earlier about um you know if if i were if i could trace my my african uh lineage back to precisely where my my ancestors came from um uh, and and the impossibility of doing so so it, it's the poem is also um bringing to light that impossibility and um and 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 but but sort of grounding it in uh, an experience that is singular meaning uh, the the world war 1 and the fact that um the west indian soldiers were never given any form of at least in the early stages of the war were certainly uh considered secondary citizens and then following the war um were treated uh, with derision mm-hmm. and you know that being the the way in which colonialism operates and as you mentioned earlier, how how poetry can both be a a confrontation and a celebration. Mm-hmm. I mean, I the, the fact that you're in a sense trying to resurrect history here and confront it and celebrate mm-hmm. it. It seems mm-hmm. to me that that all comes through in this one poem that you just shared with us. Thank you. I I, I love going back to uh, three words Milton, the John Milton uses to, to use to describe poetry. As something that is simple, sensuous, and passionate. I think each word must be infused with all three, and and then the second word next to that word, and the the third word until you have a line, and then the line, another line. So line in depth, building um, uh, vertically, and but still going uh, horizontally. Um, so poems offer that kind of complexity of um, attention, of, of attentiveness, and I think that the poet's first duty is towards um, um, making sure that that kind of complex relations uh, are present in, in, in the poem. And you know, though this is a poem and the book, it, a book overall, uh, focused on one subject. Um, the, the experience of, of World War One, West Indian soldiers' experience of it. I, I I wanted to be a lot more Catholic than than just th- that one uh, one subject matter because theme fades, you know, 
um, one can easily write an essay or uh, a prose passage that um, gives you enough information and detail about um, a certain experience. But how do you make that experience come alive? Mm -hmm. um, uh, like what you said, resurrect it. And um, yeah, so uh, this is a process of excavation. And, and um, I hope that it holds. Yeah. Well, I'd love to end with a few lines about Miss Mona. This, I, I think, this wonderful presence you brought to us on this interview. Yeah. Can you um, can you share just a few a few lines with us? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I we were talking earlier about uh, Miss Mona and uh, the Kumina woman who um, who would call me to uh, buy her cigarettes and. Here are, this is from a poem called Two Trees. She would announce from her yard before one dropped, sending us in a flurry through the fence under the mango tree, heads up for the blind fruit that would come tearing down the branches. Falling on knees, we would go helter-skelter in the grass until someone lifted the yellow trophy high before running off, teeth peeling the skin off the furry flesh. Other times, we would try to sneak past her perennial stare on the other tree. She would catch us and come in a talk. Oi! Kinte payamalu and take back a boy for me. And we would bring her her boy, the cigarette she would light and smoke backwards, sticking out an ash tongue before spitting butt and phlegm at our toes. She would go on. Before the sea tech Gabby, I know. I sit right here to Ras and I feel sand in my ears. I feel my belly bottom sinking. Then when my son Baba come tell me him drown, I see him leaning on the nutmeg tree and I say, Gabby, you not coming in? Him smile, blowing short bubbles just a bussing him out. Could the man move? No, sir. Him like stone. Him right there. She would then point at the spotted tree, blighted corneas thick and white on it, telling me when mango going to fall. Well, it's been such a pleasure to be joined by Aishan Hutchinson, poet, essayist, associate professor and director of creative writing at Cornell University. I, I, I've loved just spending some time with you and gone on a bit of a journey together here to Jamaica and some really important stuff. So Aishan, thank you for sharing your work with us. I appreciate it very much, uh, Jonathan. Thank you for talking with me. All right, that's it for today. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody, and we'd love to hear from you on our Facebook page where we nearly have 1,000 members, which is a big goal of mine, and I would love your help to get us over the finish line. You can find the link at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Have a wonderful day. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. Take care.